When it comes to buying your first home, everyone has questions. Can we even afford to buy a house right now? Well, I need to negotiate. How do I even negotiate? Luckily, a REMAX agent has answers. Hey, Brian, those are really good questions. They are? Thanks. It's my first time buying. I work with first-time buyers all the time. I got you. REMAX agents have more experience than other real estate agents. Visit REMAX.com or download the REMAX app to find the right agent. The right agent can lead the way. Each office independently owned and operated. From time to time, begrudgingly, we like to recommend a new podcast you may like as a listener of Keep It. From the award-winning television critics at Vanity Fair, Still Watching gives audience members a deep dive into the shady business dealings of the Roy siblings while predicting who will be the one to take over the reins of Waystar Royco. Join Chris Murphy, a staff writer at Vanity Fair, and Richard Lawson, chief critic at Vanity Fair, as they recap the final and most anticipated season of HBO's succession on Still Watching. Richard is a good friend of mine. Here's how you know you can trust him. We became friends, joking on Twitter, about e-correspondents Jules Asner and Steve Kometko. And that is legitimacy right there. Jules Asner, by the way, married to Steven Soderbergh. Look it up. Tune in every Monday as Richard and Chris discuss Sunday night's new episodes. Make sure you're following Still Watching, available now wherever you get your podcasts. And welcome back to Keep It. I'm Louis Fertel, and you're about to hear an unfamiliar voice. Please brace yourself. Hello. No, the- I'm Kendra James. Keep It producer. Executive producer. Uh, uh, pardon me. My God, I feel crazy <laughs> for demoting you like that. Also, former Jeopardy alum. Yes, twice. Yes. Now, tell people how that's possible. So, uh, long story short, my dad entered me unbeknownst to me when I was nine. I was the only child at the test who knew every Star Trek alien in the category they gave us. And uh, then I ended up on Jeopardy by the time I was 10. And so you were on once. That would have been Kids Week. Yeah, so I was on the first ever back-to-school special hosted by Alex Trebek. Yes. Um, And then to celebrate what apparently was some sort of momentous occasion, they had us back a decade later to celebrate our 10-year anniversary. So I was on again at the age of 20. I hope you're on every decade for the rest of your life. The way Barbara Streisand gets like one top 20 album every decade. They, uh, they've they missed. I'm 35 now. So it would be 15. I don't know if they're holding till 20. I I, and now I've missed the last opportunity to see Alex again. Right, right, right. Um, I should say Ira Madison is not here right now, but you will hear him during our interview segment today with a guest I am so, so excited about. I'll talk about how amazing she is anyway. But um, uh, it's a crazy week. First of all, these writers are on strike. And by the way, I'm one of them. Me, Lewis, being on strike. Picture me with a sign. It I seems can't wait crazy. to see it. What are you going to wear? Well, they <laughs> kind of recommend you wear red and black. That's what they did during the 2007 so, strike. So today you're a Delta. Yes. And okay. also, by the way, let's just talk about the color red and how it doesn't belong in this complexion. I And I feel that, like, for myself, too, I never wear red. Really? And that would be hard for me. Like, oh. if I was told that I had to wear go out and wear red and black, A, because Delta. But also just because that would not work. No, picture Elle Fanning in red. You can't. It doesn't <laughs> work. So uh, we're going to have to work that out. The writers are fighting for a whole bunch of things that are all, look at the list, downright reasonable based on the amount of money being made in all these various channels. Um, One that's on my mind, uh, as you know, I write for Jimmy Kimmel Live, which is on ABC, but um, the comedy variety writers on streaming, one of the things that we're fighting for right now is that there's no NBA minimum and like they basically can be paid nothing. So if I did this job but worked at like the Amber Ruffin show, like based on the current rules, 
they could basically treat me like a task rabbit. They'll be like, we'll call upon you and pay you just a little bit of money and good luck with health insurance, whatever, your life, it et cetera. Is, it essentially comes down to like a day rate, right? Yes. Yeah. Right. I, I'm not WGA. I'm just a I'm just a little writer trying to struggle out here. And as in, you know, I'm a huge writer right. in size. <laughs> yes. Um, but I really appreciated like how transparent um the negotiating committee and just like the WGA members as a, as a whole have been with what their list of we say demands, but that sounds so strong for things that are so reasonable yeah. to be asked for. But the fact that all of this stuff, you can find it online. And you can really, if you want genuinely a clear understanding of why this is happening, it is very well laid out. Yes. One of the things is they basically want to give writers this chunk of money. And it's the same chunk of money that David Zaslav, the head of Warner Brothers, would be getting for one year of work, I think ultimately. It's, it's essentially like 400, rounding up, it's like $430 million, which if you think about it, that is less than any Marvel movie. I believe So it is less than the profit of one movie coming out written by one WGA member. Yeah. So in other words, believe us, we yeah. just would like to be paid well and fairly, et cetera. Um, but we're going to get back to normal pop culture right now. Namely, uh, the Met Gala is on the docket. Um, the theme was Karl Lagerfeld, which is, not a <laughs> which is not a controversial topic at all. So um, nothing to say about him. Uh, we'll get into that uh, very briefly. And uh, also we'll talk about the death of Jerry Springer, and also the kinds of things you watched during the day when you were sick growing up and how that's totally different from now. Like, children really do not understand turning on the bold and the beautiful. No. <laughs> you know, much as no. Ira would want them to, they just don't understand that. So we'll get into the insanity of Jerry Springer culture, the weirdness of him as a celebrity, the kind of sly irony he brought to being a quote-unquote ringmaster. That's what he called himself on his show. And then our guest today is an Oscar winner, and also just one of these kind of radiant people that when we booked her, I just knew she would be as rad as I expected. It's Mary Steenburgen, who's in Book Club, the next chapter, uh, with our girl Jane Fonda, our girl Candace Bergen, our girl <laughs> Diane Keaton. All the girls showed up for this one. And our girl Greg D. Nelson, frankly. Um, I have to say, you guys have had, just like as, as an EP slash observer, Y'all have had a string of guests that, frankly, like, we have a slack that you're not part of. Um, but let me tell you the thirst <laughs> that I have seen going down in this Slack channel that have made me just, like, want to kind of, like, pop in here and open the door. These people, uh, this room of of queer men and and straight men just lusting at, after Rachel Weisz. Oh, sure. I mean, I mean, I mean, right in a row. Rachel Weisz, uh, Tony Collette, Marsden. James Marsden, Patty LuPone, everybody who's... Uh, Rad and also very opinionated, and we're very thankful. And Mary Steenburgen is the uh, next in this uh, cavalcade that's uh, we're so thrilled about. I, I fucking love her. You know who she reminds me of? We had Valerie Bertinelli on this show one time. Another time, Ira wasn't here, and <laughs> um, uh, th there's just this combination of uh, like a radiant positive energy, but then also like a real sly, knowing humor too. And I love that dichotomy. And you get both of those things in this interview. Uh, and then, of course, we'll say keep it to something. So something. get your spiciness together, Kendra. Oh, no. <laughs> I might have used it all last night on the Met Gala. Oh, well, <laughs> save some for us. We'll be right back. So the Met Gala occurred Monday night. And first of all, it always sneaks up on me. I feel like they announce it the day before. And yeah. then it just happens the day of and everybody's prepared. I can't explain <laughs> it. And then we're all like, is Rihanna in town? And then there's the footage of Rihanna entering the hotel. So, okay, we are getting 
Samriana, who are you most looking forward to this year, Kendra? Well, so last night I was holding out hope, like I've held out hope for weeks for many things from her. I thought Beyonce was going to show up. Oh, I thought yeah. she was going to give us something. That's fully the great pumpkin behavior. Yes. You, like, what were you thinking? <laughs> Sitting in that pumpkin patch, waiting for her to show up. I'm waiting for visuals for a year. I don't know. <laughs> I thought she was going to come and give us the cuff it look. That was the rumor online from Balenciaga. And we'll get over it. I am continuously inspired and disturbed by the rumors about what her follow-up renaissance stuff will be. When I keep hearing rock and roll album, what oh, does that mean? I'm assuming it's a country album. Yeah, which, can I tell you, Daddy Lessons, one of my least favorite Beyonce songs. Daddy Lessons, I have a, I'm terrified of flying. Hate flying. Okay. Daddy Lessons is the song that I must listen to, like, <laughs> as we're taxiing. Every time we're taxiing, I turn Daddy Lessons on as soon as the engines start. Wow. We taxi up. I listen to the whole song in full. I will allow myself to pause if they're making an announcement because I am terrified. And if an announcement is happening, I'm assuming something has gone wrong with the plane. So I will pause it, but then I have to, then I unpause it and listen to it in full. If I'm listening to the Dixie Chicks version, I go straight through the talking. It is part of my flight preparation. Yes. Uh, I, I, I enjoyed the Dixie Chicks covering it uh, and then also performing and. At the, at the CMAs. CMAs mm-hmm. with uh, uh, Beyonce, where they then ripped into Long Time Gone yes. by the Dixie Chicks. And that, it's a very subversive song because they're hating on certain figures yeah. in uh, country music. But it turns out, I'm not a big fan of your comfort, Kendra. Um, <laughs> take that. Uh, anyway, uh, the Met Gala went down last night. The theme was Carl Lagerfeld. And now <sighs> we can get into what's weird about him in a second. But I just want to say, it felt a little bit like on RuPaul's Drag Race when they have a challenge where the theme is Janet Jackson and then what you get is a bunch of people just dressed up in familiar Janet Jackson clothes. Yes, Which I want to see that, you know, uh, love her work, want to think about her, want to evoke uh, several eras of her. But at the same time, I think it makes for a less, I don't know about inspired uh, presentation or just a less quote-unquote campy version of the Met Gala, which was kind of what we expect now. For me, it felt like, so Carl Lagerfeld has, outside of Chanel, he has his own sort of ready-to-wear line that you'll find in, like, a Bloomingdale's outlet or a Saks Off Fifth. And for me, the majority of what I saw last night simply looked like we walked into Saks Off Fifth, grabbed something off the rack, and just, like, it was because it... When you're doing Karl Lagerfeld, you have, like, four options. Black, white, pearls, beige. Yes. That's it. And that's a lot of what we saw, and we didn't see a lot of creative reinventing right. of those looks. I also don't feel I heard a lot of people defending the worst parts of Karl Lagerfeld. Oh, no. uh, you'll never meet somebody who is more uh, on the record about how uh, body positivity is bad for the culture. I mean, the, the list goes on and on. My man's would have been upset to see Lizzo there. <laughs> yes. Right, right, right. He's one of these people that you're constantly assured is a droll, um, kind of witty, sparkling figure in fashion. But I do think ultimately, and I don't think this is just me reading the brainy quote on Karl Lagerfeld and being upset with six of the things he said, I think the nasty does outweigh the inspiring. I agree. I agree, especially when you combine it with the fact which, like, I listen, I'm a 30-something woman in America. I own a pair of Chanel heels. I own some Chanel here and there. But when you combine it, like, first of all, Chanel, like, the background of it, like, she was a Nazi. We know this. And then you have the fact that the, like, main figurehead of the company for so many years was a man who outwardly hated fat people. He did not like anything that was not, like, basically tall, white, skinny. Nicole Kidman, shall we say, um, who wore one of the dresses that he designed for her way back in the day. Yes, um, correct. To the gala last night. But 
when you combine like those two origins of what this carpet was supposed to be inspired by, it's really hard to defend anything about it, especially when you see the results of what we got. Right. Anna Wintour, one of these people that is constantly telling you how inspiring Karl Lagerfeld was. But I have to tell you, I don't want to say she redeemed herself last night, but I had forgotten that she is dating Bill Nye. Me too. And I, Oscar nominee Bill Nye, not Bill Nye the science guy. It's something that comes up, I would say, every eight months for me. I'm reminded of it. I promptly dump it because how could that be true? Yes. And we're not, we don't see them together until last night. Right. Um, no, he's giving you um, sophisticated, lightly jaunty uh, James Cromwell. Yes. Um, who just rescued a pig he named Babe recently. So James Cromwell is still on the Babe tip. Love that. Okay. 1995 <laughs> is going swimmingly. Let's pick our favorites of the night, first of all. I'm going to start with somebody who refuses to leave her Tower of Hair era, Anne Hathaway. Yes, I've been loving this Versace campaign that I'm seeing everywhere. Yes. Um, Also, just every time I see Anne Hathaway nowadays, not that anybody here at Keep It was ever in denial about the greatness of Anne Hathaway. If we're talking about the 2008 Academy Awards, that would have been my best actress pick and Rachel getting married. Uh, yes. R.I.P. Jonathan Demi, who we talk about in our interview with uh, Mary Steenburgen today. But um, Anne Hathaway right now is giving you a lot of, uh, I would say, maybe Bridget Bardot hair. Mm-hmm. And also, or uh, I would also compare it to Bobby Gentry, if you know the song, Ode to Billy Joe. Yes. Look her up in oh, the my God. You, yeah. So she, this woman's about to jump someone off a bridge. The Tallahatchie Bridge, mm-hmm. to be exact. It's sort of like we were so... Um, unjust to Anne for a long time, and now she is on this hyperbolic climb into the stratosphere and a second Oscar. There's, it was the theater kid energy. Yeah, that's it. And we, I think, we which can is ag- controversial. I think people don't encounter that in their everyday lives. No, and unless you are someone like myself who like grew up as a stage crew kid, like right. then I'm just used to it. But even with her, it was like it was just a little much. It was a little cloying. Also, she grew up in the town next to me and had instant success uh, from high school. So maybe I was a little jealous. Who knows? (laughs) Um, But uh, yeah, no, I feel like it is with a lot of theater kids, you find that edge. It does smooth out in as you get older or you just learn how to control it more and bring it out in a situation that is more appropriate. Something that, say, Aaliyah Michelle has not learned. Interesting. Yes. You know what I think? And this sounds uh, to evoke an old term, okay, boomerish of me. You know what is <laughs> a really fabulous accessory at something like the Met Gala? Talent. Like, I think something that factors in to me loving an outfit is thinking, oh, this person is, I don't know about a genius, a genius in some of these cases, like a Nicole Kidman, Anne, whatever. And they somehow make that quality sing on a red carpet. They elevate it. They become these sort of like godlike figures when adorned with all this stuff. And it just becomes a little bit more meaningful to see somebody that impressive and that sort of insightful as an artist look amazing as opposed to, look, I'm just saying, like, does anyone get, like, a a surge out of Bella Hadid looking amazing? Well, I think what you're describing is a movie star. Yes. And we don't have a lot of those yes. anymore. Yes, oh, and sorry so, I'm in tears now. Yeah, yes. so, like, what you're describing is someone who walks onto a red carpet and understands, this is part of my job. This is a performance. This is not just about me standing here. Because, like, when you're a model, when you are a Bella Hadid, when you are a Kendall Jenner, like, what you do when you're wearing clothes is you are a a hanger. You are a rack. You're walking down the runway. You're not some, the best of our models, the Naomi Campbells, they can put on that performance. We're not really asking, I feel like, that from our current models. So when you see an Anne Hathaway, a Nicole Kidman on a red carpet, like, giving everything, it really does stand out in a new way. You're right. There's something about models 
name like like the Naomi Campbell era. I'm talking about like Linda Evangelista. Mm-hmm. Who else is uh, Stephanie Seymour, Cindy Crawford, all those people, Veronica Webb. There's something about those people that really was working the clothes. Yes. You know, like you were really studying the panache of the person wearing the outfit and the outfit was not wearing them. Mm-hmm. And I'm not saying that doesn't exist now. Like I'm, models do the job well enough. We, we want to see them. They're but more famous than ever, George I guess. Michael is no longer with us. Right. Prince is no longer with us. Yes, like, right. Like no one is making them work outside of the runway. What is Thierry Mugler getting into a screaming fight about? <laughs> That's what I want to know. Right. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> Who's inspiring this sort of rage? Uh, who else did you love at the Met Gala? Um, okay, I also my one of my favorites, and I feel like this is a little basic because she was not playing outside of her wheelhouse. I loved Jenna Ortega in the custom Tom Brown. Yes. Now let me tell you something. So Jenna Ortega sort of evoking the Wednesday Adams viral look and um, Screen Six probably too. I'm sure that's playing into it. She's just she's a girl who likes to have blood on her face. Yes. Yes. Uh, I did sort of flinch realizing that at this point she is basically doing Helena Bonham Carter cosplay for a living. Yep. Like, has she has she leapt to that level? That said, it does look good on her. Like, it looks very good. Like, goth child has a particular set of clothes it belongs in. Yeah. And she is finding them. And the key here, again, is I think, like, again, going back to that sort of theater kid thing, the key is what's going to happen when she has aged out of this. Mm-hmm. And is she going to be able to translate it into something older? Yes. Like Christina Ricci has, I think, very well. Right, right, right. Um, and I'm loving Christina Ricci on Wednesday, by the way. Thrilled. Yes. And, and of course, in Yellow Jackets. Um, I think one of my favorite looks of the night is, of course, Michaela Cole. Mm, yes. Now, yes. she did something subversive, with not which not too many people did. She dressed in this brownish, sort of Nefertiti-looking, uh, gold-bedazzled-look bodysuit. And it's Scaparelli. And Scaparelli was basically an enemy of Coco Chanel's yeah. by the end of her <laughs> life. The end of her life. And so it sort of stands in opposition to the legacy of Karl Lagerfeld. Uh, it's just a stunning look. She's just in a, when you're watching Black Panther Wakanda forever, she appears on the screen and you have to like grab Stare. your drink. Yes. yes. <laughs> yep. I love this was the best Scaparelli of the night for me. The other one. The Scaparelli that made me a little sad because it was so close and then it just it didn't get there. The Kim Kardashian, which was the sort of, uh, I would say she's wearing kind of a nude skim with no texture. And then she is draped in pearls and beading on top and then also on the bottom. And the bodice, her bodice, it was very beige. It needed texture. It needed to be quilted. It needed to be studded. It needed something there. But it was, it felt really close to me. And there's something about Kim right now. I've never seen a frame of that show. Mm-hmm. But there's something about her right now as the family, I think, is falling a little bit from relevancy in pop culture. Now I'm rooting for her. Mm. Now I want her to now I want her to do well. Yeah. You want her to have her socialite, like ma- I matter. Like, like yeah. get the business sense together and find the way to have another wave of relevance. Exactly. And I'm like, it also last night was um it was Paris Hilton's first ever Met Gala. And I kind of wanted her, I'm like, okay, Paris is coming. I want you to like show out to your old boss. Like I want you <laughs> to have that moment. I'm sure she's had it many, many, many times. But like that, uh, you know, you're watching this thing for like those sort of storylines and those arcs. Right. And that's just one that I had created in my head. You're hoping <laughs> for a working girl reboot with <laughs> Melanie Griffith, with Kim Kardashian as the Melanie Griffith part and Paris Hilton as the Sigourney Weaver. Right. Okay. <laughs> We'll put that into the uh, ozone layer and hope it comes back to us. Uh, one look I was super relieved to see in a uh, kind of jaunty menswear looking uh, look is Kristen Stewart. 
Now, I have to say, aside from Lil Nas X, who we'll get to in a second, I did not find it to be, uh, pardon my French, Kendra, a very faggoty um, Met Gala, you know? And I, I do yeah. feel like queer energy makes this sing in a way. Like, really, like cements the relevance of something like this and makes it not just seem like a Getty image is real we're watching from 2008. Yeah. No, I agree. I Looking at the men's looks, like, even, like, people were going on Twitter, like, people were going nuts over Pedro Pascal's, like, red look and being like, oh, daddy, oh, love this. I'm like, this is quite boring to me. It, it's like a cool red coat and, like, I guess shorts are interesting for some people, but... No. No, I'm a gay man who's 36. <laughs> I'm going to continue wearing shorts. Right. It's just not that... It's not, We're it's, not breaking you all, new ground You here. won't find that inspiring when I do it or when most people do it. Yes. And it's like, yeah, I can pull up my socks too. It's like, we, we got this. <laughs> you have a shapely calf. Wonderful for you. I watch Richardson. I see enough. Um, <laughs> also, I just want to point out the overlap uh, sartorially between Kristen Stewart and Timothy Chalamet. I feel like there's something competitive going on there. Mm-hmm. And I would say I actually do probably like more Timothy Chalamet movies at this point than Kristen Stewart movies. Like, I don't stand personal shopper. That wasn't my bag. Anyway, but <laughs> in terms of fashion, right now, I love how Kristen Stewart is hitting. So I, she's been a Chanel spokesperson for a minute now, and I have not loved, shout out to Tom and Lorenzo, who like, if you go to their website, they file everything away uh, for every person. And so you can go through and look at all of Kristen Stewart's Chanel looks. And for me, Chanel does not do punk super well. And she is very much like has been um, sort of putting that energy out for a few years now. And so her Chanel looks for me have been a hit or miss. This one is the first one that I've really like, I've loved. Yeah. Um, she does it often at con, like whenever she's at con, she's in like some sort of punkish look. And those don't work for me. I don't know if it's like the summer sun of France. That's just not, <laughs> that's just not a place for that. Um, but it really worked last night. Also, uh, there's just something about her where whenever she dies years and years from now, she should be buried with her hands in her pockets. Yes. You know, Mm -hmm. it's that kind of shuffling around a pantaloon, uh, uh, you know, just like uh, uh, bloomers, you know, like (laughs) she's the only person who kind of can do some Kate Hepburn-y stuff nowadays. Yeah, I could, her and Janelle Monae in a pair of bloomers. That's a movie. I think of Janelle Monae still as very much favoring a slim fit, Mm -hmm. though. Not that Catherine Hepburn was like utterly voluminous, but there's some difference there. Well, I'm thinking like a, now I'm just, now I'm just dreaming of, I'm thinking like a slim fit top and a a bloomer. Yes. Janelle Monae, I could see that. Um, There were two pregnancy reveals last night. Correct. Um, One, Carly Kloss bringing another spawn of Kushner into the world. Um, And then also- (laughs) The good Kushner. The good, if there is one. (laughs) And Um, I've ranked them all, so just be aware. (laughs) Um, And then uh, Serena Williams and Alexis Ohanian um, debuted Serena's pregnancy. So Olympia is going to have a baby sibling. Uh, That didn't help the look. Oh, wow. I'm surprised to hear this turn. What do you think went wrong? I just, I didn't love it. I mean, I, my standard- for best dressed pregnant woman ever is Catherine Zeta-Jones at the Oscars. Oh, sure. For me, that is like, that is my gold standard. I judge everything by that. And this, I I actually really like it from the, like head on, I kind of get where it was going, but it just, and I think this is just a pregnancy thing. I didn't, like whenever I was seeing it from profile, it didn't seem like quite well fitted in the back. Like there was that gap that you sort of get, a gap that I'm getting in the dress that I'm currently wearing right now. Um, But it just, I didn't love this. And again, it was that black, You, she took three of the four options. She got black, she had white, she had pearls. And I don't know, it just wasn't that interesting to me. Meanwhile, Rihanna also, of course, 
had a pregnancy look and, yes. and, and and it evolved from one thing to another. But I think the most memorable version of it was this one with giant white flowers all over it. And the framing of the white flowers over her head, which sort of forms this hood that is not as uh, puffy as the rest of the look, kind of creates an odd hall of mirrors effect. <laughs> like, is that part supposed to be as big? Is that is that part supposed to be as uh, look that small? But I was happy because it was playful and absurd. Mm-hmm. And I think absurdity is the number one thing missing from this red carpet. Yes. I liked, I, I thought their whole, as a couple, her and Aesop, their whole performance and presentation, I think every year is great. This year, I loved the fact that he jumped over the barricade. I liked the fact that he was in jeans. I liked her outfit and its transformations. It was just all a very good time. <laughs> yes, right. Um, Eddie Redmayne was there, I'm discovering. Oh. Uh, let's see. What he, Why? Jeremy Strong <laughs> wore a brown kind of constable trench coat and over a minty green shirt. Yep. Said last night in the office, Slack, this looked like uh, Carnival Row didn't get season three and uh, (laughs) costumes were on wholesale. Uh, It must be said that Cardi B is one of the best looks of the night. Well, three. Yeah. Oh, that's right. And it like turned from one thing into another. She was full Transformers Optimus Prime. She, I, I can take or leave the music. I need her in my life all the time. Doing anything. I would compare her a little bit to Kiki Palmer and mm-hmm. then it's like, whatever she does, she comes into a room, immediately it's hilarious. Yes. And like a not trying thing, like the sensibility is so baked in. Mm-hmm. So like when I'm watching the the look I'm looking at is uh, has a tie on it. It goes into this large kind of wedding cake looking look with giant black flowers on it. Already it's not just fashion, it's whimsical in a way, because she has whimsy about yes. her. And this one, this was the second look, the one that she wore up the, uh, walking up the carpet. And I thought, the first one I was like, I was fine with. It was fine. This one I thought was going to be my favorite. And then she dresses in this sort of pink and black. It combines elements from the first look that she walked out of the hotel with and the one that she walked the red carpet with. So it's a pink and black tweed Chanel style suit. That one was my apps. I loved that. Yeah. It was gorgeous. Uh, J-Lo came as, she's giving widow chic in this look, uh, in this Ralph Lauren look, which is, uh, first of all, there's some color in it. It's baby pink, but it is nonetheless still a color yes. in the Chanel uh, brand. Uh, I mean, it's been said a million times. The woman looks the same as she did. This this picture could be from 25 it's years ago. Upsetting. And I say it, I say it, I say that in a, uh, I'm simply awed way. Like yeah. my face is sinking. Yes. I mean, she... I did. I was like, where is Ben? And then I didn't care. Right. Um, I'm sure he was happy to not be there. She looked, I mean, just even like the amount of side boob that's coming out. I can't, there's no place to complain. It's fitted beautifully. It doesn't look like Ralph Lauren too, which I No, it's very surprising. Yeah. You would never guess. Yep. I did want to shout out Tiana Taylor also in Tom Brown, which I think is, he's just my favorite American designer right now, I think. Um, And looking at the, designs that he made for this carpet. I think there was a point in time where he was up for a a Chanel job. Looking at these make me wish he had gotten it. Mm. Let me just say about Tiana Taylor, I feel like not enough people are discussing the movie 1001. Have you seen it yet? I haven't seen it yet. It is on my list. All I've heard are good things. I hadn't heard anything about it when I originally saw it, other than she was the starring role in it. This person is about to like pop off. I was unprepared for how... Gritty is the wrong word for this movie. It is an emotional movie that really becomes believable. Every every performance in it, including all of the children in this movie, she plays a single mother in it. It's so 
something is so unforgettable about it and nothing about the narrative is trying too hard. There is a twist at the end, but I would even find that I, I find that organic to the story it was telling. I think this movie is really surprising and I hope it has legs and sticks with us through award season. And to bring it down to the uh, oh, less highbrow level, when her husband, Imani Shuper, was on Dancing with the Stars, she would occasionally make a few, like, appearances. And it was at that moment. I knew about her dancing. I, I knew about my Super Sweet 16. Had seen her around. It was when I saw her on Dancing with the Stars. Every so often I was like, oh, she's working that man at home. She's <laughs> still, like, like, there was just something in, like, her demeanor where I was like, she's coming for us. In the mm. same way that Kiki Palmer at the time was coming for us. You know what one of my favorite things in that regard is? Throughout the 70s, Angelica Houston would just be at the Oscars with Jack Nicholson. She wasn't yet a movie star. Right. You know, she was like, you know, the model, uh, Richard Avedon News, etc. But there she is, poised with, you know, like a lampshade-shaped haircut. And you're like, well, who's that? Who's that? And then finally she became an actress and then suddenly was an Oscar winner. Taking the vibes. Yes. Taking the vibes right. before you can get there. Yeah, we were, we were, yes, we were drunk on her visually already before she became a formal movie star. Um, Tiana, please be the next one uh, of those. Barry Keoghan looked fabulous in a blue-striped uh, uh, Met Gala. I just, he is one of the few actors to me in a way that we... I think used to ascribe this quality to Adam Driver, has mystique to me. Mm. What is going on with you? Weird noses. Yeah, th that's what's going on, <laughs> first of all. Yeah, something askew, if you will. Mm -hmm. But then there also seems to be something intellectually askew about them, too. Like, I don't know about irritable, but like strange and gifted, you know? And so that's what separates them from Owen Wilson. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Uh, uh, no comp. Do love, uh, I Owen, love Owen Wilson. Wilson on occasion. One of my longtime crushes. <laughs> um, uh, uh, another great nose of all time, Mr. Clive Owen. I want to give a shout out to Amanda Seyfried, and I know I'm saying it right because her name rhymes with rye bread. Um, she gave us a <laughs> kind of porny Carol Kane look, you know, which pale people can often do when they have the curly blonde hair. She also stuck her neck out for the writers in a memorable clip that went viral. I think she was talking to Variety at the time. But Lil Nas X came spray-painted silver uh, in, what would you call that? Just like a, a booty short? I, I think it was just a, a thong or a booty short. Yes. Um, and yeah, he was spray-painted silver and bedazzled yes. um, with crystals. And now I, I did not see a close-up of his face until much later in the night. So I thought he was just kind of giving like a... a I don't know, like a, a Game of Thrones, like Winter King situation. And I was like, okay, it's creative. I can get with that. And then I saw the face. And then I saw Meow. Yes. <laughs> uh, so he had come dressed as Karl Lagerfeld's cat, Choupette, and he was not the only one who came as that. Also, yes, uh, you, you could probably solve this yourself, but Doja Cat also did with yes. a full cat face in a way that evoked like a B-movie from yeah. the 50s or 60s. Or a movie called Cats that came out in 2019. <laughs> My favorite B-movie from the 50s or 60s, Cats. <laughs> 2019's Cats. Uh, yeah, I actually can't pick a favorite between either of those because that is the level of absurdity you're supposed to bring to right. this sort of thing. Like there's a little bit of, I don't know about debase yourself a little bit, but take a risk that you might be horrifying. Yeah. You know? I think for me, uh, Nas's edges out um, Doja's just slightly, if only because I got the feeling that he could not sit down comfortably. He could not no eat. No way. 
uh, he could not do anything. Whereas she was going to have an easier time. He sacrificed more. And also, I wonder if there was some King Midas guilt. Like, did he worry he was going to rub, <laughs> like, d- like silvery debris on everyone all right. the time? Like a real housewife just leaving self-tanner wherever they go. <laughs> okay, you know what? It was a dignified Met Gala. Probably not... I, I can think dignified. Of, yes, I can think of other years that, like, gave me a little bit more life. But you know what? There was some glamour served. The Nicoles, the Anns showed up. The Violas showed up. Yes. Uh, Mary J. Bly's debuted a new boot. <laughs> <laughs> it's got to debut somewhere. Yeah. We'll be back after the break with our interview with Mary Steenburgen and Ira Madison will be here for it. Keep It is brought to you by Viore. Tired of boring workout gear? Well, check out Viore. Viore's versatile and comfy products are designed to look great in and outside the gym, whether you're running, training, or even just weekend lounging. Doing nothing, you look great in Viore. The woman's performance jogger is the softest jogger you'll ever own. Grab one of the new colors before they sell out, and check out the women's daily legging, which features a high-waist, drawstring tie, and upgraded no-slip fit. For guys, there's the men's core short, the most comfy-lined athletic short out there. Am I wearing one right now? Who's to say? and the men's Sunday performance jogger. Plus, Viore is 100% offsetting their carbon footprint and reducing and offsetting 100% of their plastic footprint from 2019 onwards. I wear this stuff all the time. I love to work out, and I need to be comfortable while I do it. There's something about the cling of the short on the thigh that is essential for me, and Viore provides it. Viore is an investment in your happiness. For our listeners, they're offering 20% off your first purchase. Get yourself some of the most comfortable and versatile clothing on the planet at viore.com slash keep it. That's V-U-O-R-I dot com slash keep it. Not only will you receive 20% off your first purchase, but enjoy free shipping on any U.S. orders over $75 and free returns. Go to viore.com slash keep it and discover the versatility of Viore clothing. The early 2000s was a breeding ground for bad reality competition series. From shows like Kid Nation, CBS's weird Lord of the Flies-style social experiment that took 40 kids to live by themselves in a ghost town. It was also pretty boring, by the way. To The Swan, a horrifying concept where women spent months undergoing a physical transformation and made to compete in a beauty pageant. Amazing to watch, by the way. On each episode of Wondry's podcast, The Big Flop, comedians join host Misha Brown to chronicle one of the biggest pop culture fails of all time and try to answer the age-old question, who thought this was a good idea? Recently, The Big Flop looked at The Swan, a competition for women who were hoping to transform their physical appearance. The problem? The women were isolated for weeks, berated, operated on, and then they were ranked by a panel of judges. And that's just after Truman Capote was done with them. Unsurprisingly, it led to trauma for the contestants and terrible reviews. Follow The Big Flop on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen early and ad-free by joining Wondery Plus. Black Stories, Black Truths is a celebration of Blackness from NPR. Each of NPR's Black voices are as distinct, varied, and nuanced as the Black experience itself. In the Black Stories, Black Truths collection, you'll hear stories of joy, resilience, empowerment, and creating world-shifting things out of struggle. Each episode is a living account about what it means to be Black today, told from a unique Black perspective. From Bobby Shimerda to The Wire, Michelle Obama to Reparations, there's no limit to the range of Black stories and Black truths. Black stories haven't always been centered in the telling of America's story. Now, they are the story. 
In NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, you'll find a collection of some of NPR's best podcast episodes celebrating the black experience. Hear a feed of episodes from across NPR's podcasts that center black voices. It's NPR Noir. Turn on NPR today and hear a range of voices as varied, nuanced, and black as the country we reflect. Sorry should never be about us without us. And by us, I mean me and Lewis. <laughs> I'm black, you're tan. <laughs> oh, that's extremely generous of you. <laughs> I look like I belong in Portrait of a Lady, honey. It's like deep white. <laughs> Listen now to Black Stories, Black Truths from NPR wherever you get your podcasts. So our guest today debuted in the 1978 movie Going South with Jack Nicholson and basically from then on became a movie institution. She was in Melvin and Howard. She's in Ragtime. Uh, she's Parenthood, Philadelphia, Step Brothers. Uh, she also has an Academy Award, which, in my opinion, she should point at every time Ted Danson gets out of line. Now she is in the sequel to her hit movie, Book Club, Book Club, The Next Chapter. Please welcome Mary Steenburgen. Hi. Hi. <laughs> <laughs> I'll, I'll make sure I point that out to Ted. Thank you. Good. I have lots of good ideas for the both of you. So we're starting okay, just with good, that. Good. Because he has really an exceptionally secure ego. So I've tried for 30 years to make a dent in it. And I'm, I have no headway whatsoever. So maybe you can help me out. Oh, no problem at all. Um, I, I just want to say about Book Club, the next chapter, This is these are obviously movies about um, longtime friendships you have uh, with these women who are Jane Fonda, Candace Bergen, and Diane Keaton played these characters. And now I'm realizing the last book club was actually five years ago. So now you actually do have something of a years long friendship with these people or at least working relationship. What's it like making this movie with them now that you've known all three of them a long time? You know what? Um, before we made the first one, I had so many people who heard who I was working with. And by the way, none of us had ever worked together before. No combination mm. of us, which is pretty weird considering how long we've been around. But um, <laughs> but people would say to me, oh, wow, you know, I wonder who's going to be the diva, who's going to, you know, what is that going to be like? That's going to be so intense. And I work with these women that every single day they're on time. They, they know their lines, they're ready to play there. Um, and then of course the stories were just, I mean, I really do wish that we had had a camera there just to hear the stories when we're sitting around in some garage, that's our holding room or something talking because it was just, the stories were insane and um and they had sort of overlapped with a few men in their lives and then of course Ted's played every one of their husbands at some point I think <laughs> and it was just so the opposite of the kind of assumptions people make about women who are successful who work together and um I, I really honestly fell in love with all three of them. They're so different and I love each of them. And um, at the end of this new book club is a song. I write music that I, that's another part of my life. And so I wrote a love song really for all three of them, but we all four sing it and to each other. 
And um, that's over the end credits. And um, and that's how I feel about them. I'm I'm so moved by them. I think they're hilarious. And I feel so, so lucky to know them and be close. I'm close with all three of them. And it's um, it's one of the great gifts of this part of my life. And you started the original book club, you know, like that came out in 2018 and you're reading Fifty Shades of Grey and that one. And that was sort of the fun and comedy of that book. Um, and now in the next chapter, you're on an Italian vacation. Uh, and it also starts out, uh, I had forgotten, like like Lewis mentioned, that, you know, it was like five years ago. Like, um, it starts out with you all um, Zooming because, you know, COVID has happened. And then you're able to finally reunite. And I guess that also mirrors um, what would have happened um, with the four of you. So how was the book club two conceived? Um, how did you all decide that you wanted to go back and do another one? And were you talking about it during COVID? Were you Zooming with one another during COVID like your characters were in the movie? Well, um, on a plane on the way to Vegas to promote the first one, Candace and I decided that it was going to be successful and we were going to do a second one and that it was going <laughs> to be in Italy. <laughs> and um, we thought, you know, if we're going to do another one. Uh, it, it can't just be in our neighborhood in LA. I mean, the, the place that was supposed to be my house in the first one was two doors down from a place I had actually lived for 15 years. Oh, wow. My trailer was parked right outside my old driveway and the tree, my tree kept like every time I'd shut the door to my trailer, the tree would kind of almost like try to come into my trailer. And I, I felt like this is so strange, you know, but then we decided for the second one, we've got to go somewhere fun, you know? So we of course <laughs> picked Italy and, um, and then COVID and, and I zoomed a lot with especially Jane, because we would, um, you know, be involved in different political things together. So we zoomed quite a bit. Um, and the first time we <laughs> Zoomed with Candace. I don't know if I should tell this, but it was just us to to hang, to catch up and see each other. And Candace had never Zoomed before. This is right at the beginning of the pandemic. And she was kind of, I guess she was in her bed or something. And she had her computer where it was just totally a shot up her nose. And we and we have some candles. You've got to figure this out, you know, because this is the way it's going to be for a while. And that's not the best angle. So anyway, she's now quite, quite good at it. But it was what a strange time, man. It was I remember Ted and I losing our minds over the first kind of big Zoom that we did. It was with something with Tina Fey and and you know, we've had the luxury of working around lighting crews for all these years where we've learned absolutely nothing. And <laughs> this is like big light. And we're trying to figure out 
how to use it and how to do the Zoom. And we're we're actually getting in a kind of a fight because we're both so anxious about it. <laughs> it was just pathetic. And then when we finally got the light on and I have my glasses on, there's like two, you know, two giant reflections in my glasses. So um, we've definitely come to appreciate the crews that we've worked with all these years because we we are so lame at it. Just, I'm just complimenting us, Ted, and our um, our Tinas. Yeah, I Tina. <laughs> I watched uh, one of the Zoom interviews you did with Jane over uh, a Fire Drill Fridays, mm-hmm. and first of all, just of course, uh, fabulous in general. But I I hosted a Q and A with Jane a couple months ago, and she mentioned that she literally knew Ted's. Uh, first and second Wordle words that he uses every time he plays Wordle. So it sounds like you guys got very acquainted. <laughs> we, I know, we're very close when you know each other's Wordle choices. Well, we taught her how to do it. And the, I was thinking about it this morning because today, I've already forgotten what it was, but it was a little bit tricky, whatever it was. And um, I thought, I wonder, you know, I, I wonder if I get a call from Jane because for a while she would call and say, will you give me a hint? Which, of course, Wordle kind of does do, but she hadn't figured that out yet. And she, and um, and I loved it when she would call, just any excuse to be on the phone with her. But, um, yeah, she she's a big grown-up girl now and doesn't call about Wordle. <laughs> Speaking of, um, you just you just brought up Ted again, and I recently was um, catching up on Kirby Enthusiasm, and I love watching like you two acting together, and that led me to revisit um, Inc. The first show that you wow. two worked on together. Wow. It's on YouTube. I remember it from when it aired back in the nineties. Like I'd seen a couple episodes, and now I watched a bunch, uh, and it was so much fun to see. Your chemistry, you know, in the 90s versus your chemistry, you know, like on Curb or like when you guessed it on Mr. Mayor, what was it like working together after you'd first met? And now do you have sort of more of a comfort working with each other now? Are you still able to surprise one another on set when you're in scenes together? Oh, well... First, how amazing that you did that deep dive. I haven't looked at anything since. Um, It's really funny. I don't think it, I mean, to be honest, at that time, people were kind of weird about seeing a married couple, even though in the show we play a divorced couple, but I didn't get the feeling that people were rooting for us to do it. You know, Mm. it was kind of like they, they know that you're married. So then they're watching you play divorced and there there's already a disconnect or something. I don't know. I don't know what it was. It, it, um, as far as us working together, we absolutely loved it. And we're, you know, I'm very kind of snobby about acting and (laughs) my husband is such a good actor. And there's part of what I love about him and, you know, anyone, um, you know, I, I remember watching Robert De Niro, who's an amazing actor. I was lucky enough to work with once. And, and I remember watching him discover his own comedy chops. And you could see that it invigorated and thrilled him. And the reason why is it's so much harder than drama. It's so much more difficult because it can't be taught. Like you can't, 
you can't really teach someone that timing and how to be funny. It's just sort of ephemeral. And, and Ted is so, um, he just, he just gets how to find that perfect little razor thin place that keeps it real, but also makes you laugh. And it's, um, so I love working with him because he's so reliably great when you, and other people feel the same way, you know, that have worked with him. I mean, it's, our life is blessed with all these people that each of us have worked with, but you, there's such a passion among the people that have worked with Ted and, and it's just, you know, he doesn't disappoint. And um, so yeah, I would work with him any time, but I do think it's um, the thing that was great about Curb was that we sort of were playing ourselves, and then some of it was just <laughs> bullshit because we, you know, we didn't have we didn't have a young, you know, pubescent kid at that time, or you know, it was we didn't live in the house we supposedly lived in. Um, and there were there were things that were like us and things that weren't like us, but because <clears throat> mainly in that show you're you're setting up some kind of cringeworthy moment for Larry. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so yeah, it was really fun and wonderful to work together. I'm actually really heartened to hear you say you are snobbish about acting because I was thinking it was like what is the effervescent quality I love like when watching Mary Steenburgen in movies? And I feel there's there's just a sense of like, I think and you, this ties into you being a musician too. Like you just like love to create and and be good. Like I feel like that energy comes off of you. And so my question is, what do you actually find frustrating while you're trying to uh, either act or create anything, music, et cetera? What are the most frustrating parts of uh, the actual work? I think... Um... You know, I'm so grateful that I've gotten to do this and that I've made I've made my life doing this, raised children doing this, um, four kids and now three grandkids that are just at the very center of my life. Um uh so no complaints, but it it is it is sometimes <laughs> and every actor I know feels this minus maybe 10 people at the very top of the food chain of actors. But um, if you do something well, then, then there's this kind of picture that that's all you do. So for a long time, uh, I remember wanting to do comedy and people wouldn't let me do comedy. And then now I think I, I, I'm thought of, I guess, I don't know what people think, but I kind of, but the scripts I get, they're usually funny or quirky or it's a weird character. I think the thing that's important that I've learned, I mean, it's it's really important there's a great director, especially in film, but man, it's writing. I, I recently, um, um, uh, a, a friend has this amazing script screening room and um, he and his wife do movie nights and they showed Melvin Howard. And I actually had not mm. seen that movie on a big screen since um, 
since we made it. And it was very surreal to watch my, I think it was 26-year-old self. And um and it was it was kind of it shook you to your core, not because I mean the obvious thing would be, oh wow. I'm so much older. Do I wish I were that age again? And I didn't feel that. I I felt like um, what really struck me is that Bo Goldman had written such a beautiful script, and that mm-hmm. that um, it was such a privilege to say every line. And I remember the delight I took in in his creativity and. Uh, he also won an Oscar the same same year I did for that film. Um, also, Jonathan Me, who is just this extraordinary director, had had done it, and my friend Jason Robards, who I worked with three times, you know, it was uh, our first film together. And there are just so many things that it's like it was like looking, you know, at a photo album you'd never seen before of things and people you love, it was just kind of shook to my core. And I think part of it is just, we get used to seeing things on television or, you know, even smaller devices. And here was this like enormous screen and I was looking into my own past and it was just a, it was a big experience. I'm still kind of digesting it. It doesn't make me want to sit around looking at myself. Um, you know, I I don't really watch my movies. Like once I've made them, I tend to leave them alone and they're just in my memory. Um, so that was a rare experience for me. Lewis and I were literally just discussing Melvin and Howard, which by the way, is like impossible to find. Yes. Um, but I watched, yeah, I watched it in grad school. Uh, and Demi is one of my favorite directors. Um, and I wanted to ask a bit, you know, um, what was it like working with him on what was maybe, I think, his, like, fifth film, uh, where he's still, you know, figuring out, you know, the whole Jonathan Demi um, thing that everyone loves, to then come back and work with him again on Philadelphia and sort of see the progression of him as a director and I'm sure Lewis, after that, will want to know about the 1980 Oscar ceremony, too, because I'm looking <laughs> yeah. at the people you were up against, too. Yeah, Eileen and that Brennan. that is Ooh. quite a category. Yes, yeah. 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 Um, well, Jonathan was remarkable. He, You know, that, that script originally, when I first read that script, Jack Nicholson gave it to me to read. Jack was my mentor in film, and Jack, um, Jack was sent that script to play Melvin. And mm. I I believe it was, um, well, I'm almost certain at that time it was sent to him by Mike Nichols. And so Jack gave me this script as part of my um, tutelage. You know, he gave it to me <laughs> to read as an example of a great screenplay. Well, of course, I read it and went, screw that. I want to play that part. <laughs> I am Linda Dumar. And, um, and so... Uh, I tracked that script and um and at one point it was going to go to someone else and and um I asked if I could audition for the then director of it which was Jonathan Demme who I sort of met briefly a, a couple of times and um 
And so I did. And I, I remember doing this audition and at the end of the scene and it was with Paula Matt. And I just remember at the end of the scene, I just, and it was part of the scene. I just didn't do this arbitrarily, but I reached up and gave him like the biggest, most intense kiss. And then I left. And by the time I got home, my phone was ringing and Jonathan said, you, you have to play this part. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And, and I did, it was, it was, um, it's just one of those times that, you know, this really belongs to me, you know, and Mm -hmm. I cherished it and cherished working with Jonathan. I mean, he was so unique. He would sometimes direct in the most unique ways. Like we, we had a, a scene, um, where, um, where I, my character is getting married to Melvin and, um, and there have been some things, you know, the, um, the Sumo Corporation, and I, I don't know if we were immensely welcomed into Vegas because we were telling the story of the um, will to Howard Hughes. And there was a lot of debate about it. And that was that was not everybody's favorite idea that we should advocate for this crazy will that was found, which, by the way, we saw it. And, and it was, it didn't just say, I give a 16th of my money to Melvin Dumar. It listed all the people that the age of computers, you couldn't possibly have researched who who was going to get this money. It was written Mm -hmm. in a pen that uh, Howard Hughes specifically liked to use. It couldn't be disproved by handwriting expert. There were all these things that were so sophisticated that would make you believe it was real. But um, there was a lot of money at stake and there was a lot of, um, you know, it we weren't always that welcome. And so there was a little bit of a kind of, wow, this is mid film. And, and, um, I go to work and Jonathan comes in the makeup trailer in like a three piece suit with a red carnation and lapel. And I said, what are you, what are you doing today? And he goes, I'm going to your wedding. And and that was his direction to me that day was the way he was dressed, the celebratory kind of uh, magic that he would bring to a day that might have been a little bit difficult, but not with not with him. I just adored him. Mm-hmm. We mentioned that you won an Oscar for this movie. And, and by the way, that award season, I mean, nobody has stomped to victory like you did, like collecting every award <laughs> along the way. Um <laughs> It's it's always interesting to me when somebody wins an award like that so early in their career, because I imagine a part of you thinks, well, I guess I did it already. Like, what next? I mean, what are you supposed to do after you, you know, you clear a, a ceremony uh, like that? Um, was the run up to the Oscar and winning it uh, fun or stressful? How did you take it? Well, to be honest with you, I'd had a, my first child three months before that ceremony, and she was all I could think about. Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> I was obsessed with her. I still am. And um, and she, she eclipsed it for me uh, as much as I, of course, wanted to win. And of, um, I, 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 
I don't think I would have won without the critics um, because the studio didn't really believe in that movie. It was a movie. It, it was hard for them to figure out how to sell a movie about a so-called loser. That's how they saw it. And uh, the character of Melvin and they did not release that film in Europe. So for years, even still, I have people when I do interviews and stuff in Europe going, why was that film never released over here? And my friend, Phil Rosenthal, that did the movie night I was describing, told me it was really hard to get a hold of this, like you said <laughs> as well, you know, so um, perhaps it'll be somehow, um, you know, I just, I hope it doesn't disappear because it was, it was just such independently of, all of our work as actors is just such a beautiful mm-hmm. script. We need a Demi criterion or yeah, something, for sure. a yes. collection, and then put it in there. Yes, and, <laughs> and it's really kind of an amazing story about the American dream. You know, um, the the dream of it and and some of the realities of it. And um, yeah, I I love doing it. Very evocative movie, by the way. Like I can't really compare it to anything. It's like a very simple story, and he's this kind of aggressive, as you said, like loser character. But you kind of feel for him, and you're a strange character. It's just like a lot of interesting pieces in this movie. Yeah, <laughs> agreed. Yeah, um, you brought up um, your music um, earlier, uh, and would love to hear a bit about. You know, I mean, I feel like we all sort of know the story about, you know, now you you had a surgery and you, you sort of have music, you know, was in your head. Um, what was that sort of like to first experience that? And were you first sort of like, is this new, like, music I can write that I'm playing in my head? Or am I just hearing, I don't know, some, like, old <laughs> Beach Boys album that I heard, you know, like, <laughs> 20 years ago that won't stop, you know? Well, I- I had this rather innocuous surgery on my right arm and it was to remove these little, um, I think they're called lipomas. They were, they're little fatty deposits that don't, they don't, they're not dangerous, but I'd have to either cover that up or people would be very, what's wrong with your arm? Do you know there's something on your arm, you know? And so I'm just like, damn it, I'm getting rid of these things. So it wasn't even anything I was concerned about. And, but when I came out from under the, the surgery, I felt really weird, which, which I just figured that I just reacted to the anesthetic and it'll go away. And then, um, several days later, it had not gone away. And the, the details of it were so weird and not connected to any other kind of, of the, few surgical experiences I'd ever had. It was, it was that, um, and it's hard to describe this, but if you've never thought about the sound of your brain, like it's just something you don't think about, but the sound of my brain changed and it went from this kind of, you know, to an overscored movie from an underscored movie. And, and anything I saw, like I saw a street sign that became, I remember Ted and I drove past the street called Lost Lake Lane. And then suddenly I'm writing a song called Lost Lake Lane, which I love actually. It's one of my favorites. But, um, but um, so in the beginning, it was disturbing. I didn't like it. And uh, 
I honestly think if it, if life had timed out where I was trying to start working right then, which I wasn't, I don't know if I could have learned lines. I was so distracted by the weirdness and the change in, in my mind. And so when I realized it wasn't going to go away, I just started studying songwriting. I didn't study music. I studied first just the construction of songs. And I mean, I really didn't know much that much of a difference between a bridge and a verse. And I, I didn't, I hadn't paid any attention to it. It had never been a dream of mine or anything like that. I it's not that I suddenly got a talent, it's that I got an obsession and a focus. And I could either try to walk away from it, although I'm not really sure how, or I could just finally say yes to it. Because I said to myself, you you know, you have four kids, you're you have people that count on you, you have a husband that counts on you, can't you can't go nuts. So the only other option is you've got to take what you hear and make music out of it. You got to figure out how to do that. So this last like 17 years since it happened has been a process of it. Um, and I, I write for Universal. I, I write, um, I just came back from Nashville, Tennessee, where I write a lot. We write some country, but we write all kinds of things um, for movies and TV and stuff like that. I'm working on doing the music for an animated film. And uh, I've learned to play, badly play the accordion and the piano. <laughs> But um, enough that I can communicate what I hear in my head, usually on the piano or just sing it. Um, and I'm I'm writing with just these extraordinary gifted people. And it's a hugely important part of my life. And I have friends I never would have had uh, um, without it. It's just a, and it's cool. I'm, I'm, they don't seem to care. Um that I'm way older than most of them. Day before yesterday, I wrote a song with my kids, uh, little half brother, Beckett McDowell, Malcolm's son. Um, he's 19 and we just had the best time writing music. <laughs> so um, it's just, um, it's just this weird thing that happened and, and I'm grateful. God, what a strange, awesome story. I mean, it's like I can't think of anything else like that. <laughs> well, there's a book that Dr. Oliver Sacks wrote called Musicophilia. He sort of gave a name to people who ended up with some sort of musical obsession, you know? Um, and uh, um, he he wrote so many interesting books about the the human mind and um, I mean, I had a grandmother who's extremely musical. So I feel like whatever it was, it was in there. I just didn't have access to it. And now I do. I am curious for you how the movie Step Brothers fits into your filmography, because I definitely have never seen you sillier than in that film. I love that movie. Oh, my way. God. I <laughs> and love that movie. And it has such a legacy. I love that movie so much. It, it's so <laughs> endlessly funny. That is a movie I have seen uh, of mine. If, I, if I'm going through the channels and it's there, I 100% of the time will stop to watch a few minutes of it. And I, I gave an award recently to Adam McKay, 
And he reminded me, you said, Mary, when we made Step Brothers, you said to me, this is going to be the best movie you'll ever make. And he goes, you know what, Mary? I think you might be right. (laughs) And, and, um, you know, he's made all these like thoughtful, thought-provoking, political, cool movies. But I'm telling you, when you live this many years with people coming up to you and it's just as many women as men, young to old, you know, people just start laughing, trying to tell you how much they love this movie, you know, and um, Richard Jenkins and I. um, Who is amazing in this movie, by the way. So funny. So funny. And what it's. What an amazing talent he is. Oh my goodness. I have so much respect for him. But on the first day, just watching these two genius slash idiots do what they're doing, you know, and (laughs) Richard and I looked at each other because both of us are comfortable with improv, but not, we don't, we don't have that thing that they have of just it's so fast. It's so comedically gold, you know, and, and we, we were, we were so dazzled, but we were also like, what are we doing here? We both, I was so comforted that everything I was feeling inside the brilliant Richard Jenkins was feeling the same. one. And then, (laughs) and then I said, you know, I think we just have to hold down the belief that two grown men are living with their parents and becoming best friends and whatever. (laughs) We're the ones that have to try to make that real, you know, or they don't work actually if, if we can't do that. So once we kind of took the pressure off ourselves to be in any way, you know, remotely as magnificent as those two hilarious men, um, then we were super comfortable. And um, I did, I did a scene in that movie with Will Ferrell. It's when I'm driving him somewhere and he's in the back seat. And um, we spent a day on the scene and we never completed it because one of us would go, one of us would try to pull it together and get almost through it. And then the other one would make <laughs> and I think there's a few outtakes of it somewhere, but but honestly, it was all day, and we kept begging Adam McKay to let us just go home and to, can't, can't you stop? And he was just enjoying it way too much and enjoying the torture. So we were at it for hours, and I don't think we ever did a complete take of that scene. <laughs> I, I shouldn't be proud of describing what <laughs> out of control actor I am. <laughs> no, I, th- I think that um, spontaneity, shall we say, shows up in the movie and thank God it does. I know there are a few spots where if you look carefully, you can see that I'm on the verge of losing it. Definitely <laughs> around the sleepwalking scene in the uh, bedroom when they get us out of bed and, um, you can see that I'm struggling. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Well, I mean, thank you so much for being with us. Oh my God. You guys are so great. I've enjoyed listening to you and it's fun talking to you. 
Oh, thank you. Let, that's nothing really could be nice more flattering than that. I'm going to dine out on that for a while. All right. That's very exciting. Thank you so much. You never know who's out there listening to you, do you? My, yeah. my <laughs> husband's, my husband's going to um, start competing with you guys because he and Woody Harrelson are going to start doing a podcast. So. Oh, my gosh. Wow. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. Well, listen, I mean, they can join us to help take down Smartless. Okay. Yeah, we'll right. do that. Oh, you're yeah. going like, to like up. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's great talking to you guys. Yes. Lovely, Mary. Thank you so much. Appreciate it so much. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Take care. Bye. Hi, I'm Erin Ryan, a writer and host of the podcast Hysteria. And I'm Alyssa Mastromonaco, former White House Deputy Chief of Staff and also a host of Hysteria. And this week, we were asked to talk about Women's History Month. And on behalf of women everywhere, okay, fine. Our show Hysteria is about the way news and culture impacts women in America every week of the year. From the latest on reproductive rights to the ways pop culture handles women's stories. And not just because it's March, okay? We exist the other 11 months of the year, too. What? Don't... <laughs> uh, you heard it here first. Don't even get us started on our exclusive YouTube series, This Fucking Guy, where we try to figure out how the worst people in America got to be so awful. So if you're looking for a pod that's by the ladies and for everyone, make sure to subscribe to Hysteria wherever you get your podcasts. Did you know that women make up 56% of law students? That's grounds for bragging rights at the dinner table for your conservative uncle who still thinks women belong in the kitchen. It's clear that the future of the legal field is female. So why are so many legal podcasts and reviews authored by men? Hi, I'm Leah Littman. I'm Kate Shaw. And with Melissa Murray, we are the hosts of Strict Scrutiny. Each week, we break down the latest headlines and biggest legal questions facing our country through the lens of diverse voices to give you expert views you won't hear anywhere else. Strict Scrutiny is your guide to the Supreme Court. New episodes drop every Monday, plus bonuses whenever the Supreme Court takes away another one of our rights. Make sure to subscribe to Strict Scrutiny wherever you get your podcasts. Beyonce, Katanji Brown Jackson, the lady who spent 500 days in a cave. Women are all around us. And this Women's History Month, the Crooked Store is celebrating with a pop-up shop featuring favorites from women of color founded companies. For a limited time, the SheCommerce pop-up shop has everything from delicious goodies to kids books to candles, all from small companies that we love. It is a great way to support women of color while treating a woman in your own life. Maybe that's yourself to a sweet distraction from the endless horrors that we face every single day. Happy Women's History Month to all. Check out what's in stock at crooked.com slash store for this month only. Former Cincinnati mayor and I guess television host, Jerry Springer died at the age of 79. I think of myself as Yale level when it comes to knowing celebrities' ages, and I'm pretty shocked he was 79. I may have thought he was older. Even. Really? Yeah, I actually may have thought that because he he has been ubiquitous in our lives. He's never not been around. Right. I just feel like he's one of those people who's always been 53. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, time just stops for certain people and they keep going. Like Bernadette Peters. No, her age is Bernadette Peters. Right. That's it. Correct. You know, some people just don't move on the, on the spectrum. But anyway, uh, he has 
passed away. I will say about that show, um, among 90s talk shows, and recently we were just dredging up uh, Ricky Lake's show on Keep It, rather meaningfully. I fucking love that show. And so did, by the way, every babysitter I ever had. I think about how they've molded me into the person I am. A couple of things prevented me from being a stan of the Jerry Springer show. Number one, among those talk shows, it is definitely the most male-oriented. You know, like, I I, I feel like you... Are there lady stands of Jerry Springer's show? And I, I mean, I say this, like, they would have, like, kind of porny women on the show and, you know, women who, like, ripping their tops off and stuff. But, like, did women really love this show? I can't think of it. Now that you're saying that, I can't think of any. I It was more common for me because I... The only place I interacted with Jerry Springer or any kind of daytime talk show really was at the hair salon. Mm. And so it was more common for the women at my hair salon to turn on, say like a Steve Wilkos. Yeah. Uh-huh. Uh, than it was if like we had a, if we had a choice between Mari, Jerry Springer and Wilkos, it was going to go Mari Wilkos Springer. Yeah. First of all, the sartorial choices of Maury Povich were much more comforting to me. <laughs> the way he would always say more, you know, like a, a kind of mock black, uh, turtleneck with black jeans, very Cary Grant at home. Mm-hmm. That I can roll with. That's a very similar to like Montel, who yeah, always I feel very like Montel. Had a, yeah, yes, always yeah. A, a nice sweater. Yes, right. Um, yeah, quiet dignity of that. Um, <laughs> the thing about Jerry Springer was so as crazy as an episode of his show would get, the craziness never had anything to do with Jerry. He might pop in with a droll aside, the way Pat Sajak does on Wheel of Fortune. And by the way. God, among Republicans, guys, he really is fucking hilarious. I I didn't think it was possible. I didn't think it was possible. But um, the weird thing about Jerry Springer's show is as things would intensify and, you know, whatever, uh, Klan members are throwing chairs at, you know, actual Jewish people or whatever is happening on the show in an ugly, um, extreme way, people would then scream Jerry's name, you know, and he literally is kind of just standing idly by. It's so weird to me what people were rooting for in Jerry while watching the show because I, they loved his one sort of ironic detachment from what was occurring, his unshockable nature. Mm-hmm. But then additionally, it was like, I, I almost can't explain it. He didn't do a lot on that show and people stand that. So it's so interesting that you're saying this because, again, I didn't have much interaction with the show. And for me, that chant of Jerry, Jerry, that is distinctly associated with like fights. I assume that they're chanting that as a fight is happening and they're chanting for him to break up the fight. Oh, I think, wow, you really, your faith in the human race is astounding. (laughs) You're giving Malala right now. Thank you. Thank you. (laughs) Um, No, because yeah, that is kind of what I thought that that chant meant. But so they're just chanting it because they're excited to be there. Right. They've got to scream something and Jerry's like the (laughs) warlord of it. Right. Um, What's interesting is I've heard several stories about how he's like a kind of a a brilliant, knowledgeable person, even casually. Um, and I, it's not that I don't believe that, but when he gave quotes about this show, he would routinely, like, kind of jokingly apologize for it, say things like, oh, I hope hell isn't too hot, like I burn easily. And I find that a little sheepish and not quite respectable. Like, he just truly never owned the show. Oh, you want him diving into the fray. Yeah, I would love him being like, no, we need this show for this reason. I mean, that would be an astounding thing to say. <laughs> but um, it's one of those things where when that show started, it began as a mostly political show. Right. And then as, you know, the ratings dipped, can you believe it? They thought, well, what if people were injured on air? What if it became, you know, what if we had to blur out every other frame? There's something 
In fact, Jerry Springer is the definitive show where when you were flipping channels in front of your parents oh, you had in to, the 90s, you, had to run. you better hope you don't get even a millisecond on that screen. No. Oh, my! I would have heard about it for days and then like even watching, like if I had been caught watching Jerry Springer, I think, uh, then like for days afterwards, I would have been regulated to PBS only. And we didn't have cable. So like it would have been like I wasn't even, wouldn't have even been allowed to watch like Fox kids after school. Wow. It if I had stopped there. You'd be watching Zoom and Zoom alone. Yes. I wasn't I wasn't even allowed to watch like Batman the animated series. Oh well, it is a pretty dark show. Yeah. I that was outlawed for me in my house. What when you were sick at home, which is I guess how a lot of people became Jerry Springer fans. Though I also remember seeing it late at night too. Yes. Probably mm-hmm. syndicated. It would and- come on WB at like 1 a.m. 2 a.m. This was like towards more like middle school, high school for me. Yeah, I'm thinking of things like Wild on E Mm. or the Howard Stern show. And there was just that whole, I'll call it dicey block of television that began (laughs) around then. Yeah, that's when I turned to, uh, I turned to lock up on MSNBC at that point. That was my late night viewing. That was, that sort of predates the um, like murdery podcast world, does it not? Yeah, that is where I learned about Joe Arpaio like years before anyone was talking about him. Wow. Yeah, I was, I was in, I knew. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so during the day, you're sick. Yeah. What's on TV? Uh, if I'm sick at home during the day, my mom was a soap opera person. Um, she would record them on VHSs and then like would watch them throughout the week. So if if I was watching live television, it was usually one of those. Um, and then I guess like, yeah, I would go around. I remember Oprah came on at four, I believe, on ABC. Um, three was maybe like I would watch um, – Oh, there was another talk show that came on before her that I would like sort of dip in and out of. And I can't remember what it is now. But yeah, that was the kind of stuff I was watching. I was watching like an Oprah. I was watching a Tiny Toon Adventures. Oh, of Um, course. Yes, yes. I was watching a Bobby's World, which my mom also didn't like because she didn't like Howie Mandel. Oh, Um, wow. And she sussed that out through the vocals. Just like truly now that I'm thinking about it, the things that I was and was not allowed to watch were uh, arbitrary at best. Oh, no. I grew up in a very (laughs) Catholic household that is... uh, now, a, a much looser Catholic household, shall we say. And uh, I wasn't allowed to watch The Simpsons. It remains oh, a yeah. blind spot for me. I So I have I was not allowed to watch The Simpsons. And at Vacation Bible School one year, I got a uh, Simpsons CD. It had uh, Homer Sings the Blues on it. It was like a jazz parody CD. And I got that. And that was the only piece of – that was the only Simpsons reference I had. And – I knew all those songs and no one else knew what the fuck I was talking about. Right. At all. There's something about The Simpsons where obviously it's still on the air. It's like if Animaniacs never left the air. Like there's Mm. like what it's supposed to appeal to in terms of the like reference-based comedy or uh, just like the levels of like it's it it remains smart in a certain way, which I just I I associate with throwback culture. Like I just don't feel like we really uh, have that anymore. I'm going to answer this question with something rather obvious, but I, The Price is Right, oh, as yes. a television show, is so important to me. And I think, like the Jerry Springer show, like all these talk shows that actually survive, the key thing about them is they never changed. Right. It's like, no matter where you are, let's say you don't get sick for a couple of years and you don't see these shows, you still know when you turn it on again that Contestants Row is going to be red, blue, orange, and green. That the Plinko board is going to be that height with that font, which, by the way, both of those things were ripped off for the show The Wall, and nobody will explain it to me. 
When you turn on the wall, it's a giant Plinko board. Oh, the wall. That's okay. That's the one that comes on before SNL. Yes. So I always see the last three minutes of it when I'm watching SNL live. Um, and it's horrifying. It is just uh, that terrible man. Um, Chris Hardwick. Sort of like talking to middle-class people about like how terrible their lives. He has to give like a long speech before they're allowed to find out whether they've won the money or not. Right. And it's very bleak. I find it to be a very bleak and dark show as he just lectures them about how hard their lives have been and um, whether or not they're going to get this money. Game shows adopted that American Idol thing of if you're going to audition in front of us, you have to tell us how hard your life has been and you have to repeat it several times so we don't forget. Yes. Um, Deal or no deal was a big part of uh, of pushing this. Yes. Yes. Um, Going back to sort of those those game shows, I forgot because once we did get cable, um, I was a big TV land girly. And so during the day, if I was home, I was watching, it was TV land and game show network. Game show network as it originally was. Which we was could do a whole late. episode about how game show network has changed and yes. gone up and down. And there are a couple of shows I like on it now. I like America Says. I like, they have a new version of an old game show called Split Second that I'm actually loving right now, not just because I have friends who are producers on it, but the trivia is good. But like once upon a time, <laughs> It was really a good tutorial about television of the 60s and 70s. Like you would see everything from Hollywood Squares to Match Game. I loved Card Shark. Card Um, Sharks is great. I love the one where uh, the the slappy man, uh, which I still watch. Press Your Luck. Yes, Yes, Press Your Luck. I still watch that on Saturday mornings sometimes now. And obviously there's the Elizabeth Banks version now. But there's something about Press Your Luck that is so Coke 80s. Yeah. You know, just (laughs) like, like, like I, I, I marvel at that show if people remember it because one animated whammies would just take your money and you would have to sit there as they like, you know, dance to Billie Jean while taking your money. It's like a crazy show. But then also the contestants were so excitable and so irrepressible, so thrilled to be there. I want to know what the producers did. I truly don't get it. Coke? Yeah, I mean, it's, <laughs> you know, it's just like, like, like we've both been on Jeopardy. It's like, People can win a ton of money on that show, and you almost never see them react. Right. You right. know, because they're on TV, they're self conscious. Yeah. You know, and on this show, the opposite was true. I just don't, I don't get it. Yeah. No, I'm thinking about like now, like my ultimate favorite, the one that makes my husband mad every time I sit around and watch it is Match Game. Um, and those people, like, they're so calm as they're telling their life stories to that host, and they're just so relaxed. And it's so weird because, like, they're interacting with all of these celebrities, and they're really not showing how excited they are. And I yeah. have to assume it's a big deal for them. Right. I, w- I want to say on Match Game, if you're a contestant, there's something relaxing about the fact that you know the celebrities are doing the heavy lifting. Mm-hmm. Like, the host is going to go to them not just for funny answers, but for, like, badinage about their lives. And if we're talking about, like, the 70s one with Charles Nelson Riley, yeah. one of the great... Ugh. gay TV personalities ever. Brett Summers, uh, Betty White was, of course, featured on Match Game. Those people could talk and talk and talk. They were basically hosting a podcast in the middle of the show. It's a very good comparison, actually. You know? Oh, God, I love Match Game. I just, like, want to go home. Um, Uncle Arthur from Bewitched. Oh, what is Paul his name? Lynn. Paul yes. Lynn is, like, just... I was a six-year-old who loved Paul Lynn. <laughs> oh, yes. Paul Lynn became the um, center square on Hollywood Squares. Uh, by the way, that's a show that should be brought back. Agreed. We did. In, well, so I watched the one Hip-hop with Hip-Hop Squares? Oh, oh no, that the one, one where the 90s was, one. Yeah, yes, the 91. Yeah. And I really, really liked that one. Um, and I don't know why we haven't. Is it too expensive? I would I would love to know. But um, the name Bruce Valanche lives on yes. because people saw him on Hollywood Squares. Yep. And he was hilarious on that show. Caroline Ray, great panelist on 
Um, yeah, it's just a good place to put nine people who are legitimately funny. I guess the new At Midnight reboot we're oh, getting contains that. a little bit of that. And in that, the funny people get to be funny, but also I believe there's a staff of writers who are giving them funny answers in right. case they don't want to bring them. And also it will be the same 10 people that you can hear on every podcast that records in LA. That's so. correct, right. <laughs> Natasha Leggero, we look forward to seeing you. Tweet at both Kendra and me if you have daytime things we're totally forgetting about. But really, the game shows and the old television were really it for me. Yeah, that that, and then the smattering of cartoons, Animaniacs, Hysteria, Pinky and the Brain. Precisely, precisely. We'll be right back with Keep It. Now, Kendra is one of the most dignified people I know, but welcome to Keep It, the segment of Keep It, where we're mean and resentful about things and tell somebody or someone to keep it. It's not unusual for me to be mean and resentful, but uh, I'll see how I do compared to you guys. Okay, good. Well, you're invited. Thank you. Uh, I'll start. My keep it is twofold. My first keep it is to my least favorite kind of reboot thing in the world. And that says a lot because we reboot, you know, every superhero in existence. That's annoying to me. Christopher Robin R-rated hybrid comedy series in the works. Let me tell you what this is. The world is developing Christopher Robin, an R-rated comedic reimagining of A.A. Milne's beloved characters, Christopher Robin and Winnie the Pooh, as a television series. First of all, we just got that Winnie the Pooh horror movie this year, this low-budget, like, $100,000 movie, which apparently some people enjoy. The public domain should—I'm sorry, I I now believe in (laughs) things like dictatorial control— some people shouldn't be entitled to it. I don't want, like, it's it, in the same way that we get, like, a Peter Pan reboot every year, and they're, you know, the, the movie Pan, for example, not that inspired. It's just the least imaginative version of a spin on this thing possible. Like, you thought it was positive and upbeat? No, it's not. You know, it has the feeling of when somebody writes a comedy pilot to get hired as a writer, and they're like, in this version of The Middle, Patricia Heaton goes to hell. You know, it's like something zany you write so that somebody who who thinks you're an off-the-wall writer gets you hired on some sitcom. It's just a contrived, very mid-2000s idea of novel. I cannot stand it. Yeah, um, I also don't, I don't understand why we would need that. The Disney movie that they made, the Christopher Robin one with Ewan McGregor, that made me sob. Right. And I don't need anything past that. That was a sad tale. Yeah. Yes. And Ewan McGregor, very good at um, on-screen melancholy. You know what was such a good movie that nobody ever talks about? I Love You, Philip Morris. Have you ever seen that movie? I ha- not forever. With Jim Carrey? Yes. Yeah, very yeah. good. I was very surprised by that movie. And then also, I'm going to give a keep it, unfortunately, to John Mulaney's new special. Oh, no. Yes. Um, his new special, Baby J. Obviously... Towns comedian, somebody I want to see. There's like a reliable intelligence to him that's a lot of fun. I felt he was just skimming the surface of his addiction years and the problems he's had that are obviously well documented in the media by this point. But it just felt a bit cursory. I didn't feel like we were getting an intimate look at a problem. And I felt like he told us four stories that are all... I'm glad he had the kind of courage to talk about them, but they're sort of traditional things that would happen if you're an addict. Like he tells us this story that hinges on the shock value of it occurring, of how he pawned a watch he had just bought in order to buy, uh, to get money to buy drugs. And I felt like we were supposed to be too scandalized by that story when like, no, we're like all adults too. We know what desperation is. (laughs) We know that like, you know, people are going to resort to, you know, crazy things in order to, you know, feed an addiction. And I wish 
there was a little bit more trust in the audience that we too could relate to that, even though not everybody watching is an addict. Yeah, I kind of expected him to come back with a little more depth. I haven't watched it yet. And that's why I was excited because, you know, it's like the special that you put out after you've had such public drama, such public falling out, is something to be excited for. It's why we were, or some of us, were very excited, I think, for the Chris Rock special as well, because we really felt like we were going to get some depth there that ultimately did not exist. Right. So that's pretty disappointing to hear. I have to say, I never thought this would be me. I just crave watching stand-up less. When I was growing up, that used to be like the definitive art form to me, you know, kind of like the blues of comedy. Here comes somebody like, you know, giving everything of themselves, like you learn something personal about the depth of people. And I maybe it's just like, being inundated with more points of view now and realizing that, you know, kind of anybody can be funny and kind of anybody can <laughs> like um, uh, divulge intimate details and really engross you that I just, I crave it less. It feels like that button button is routinely hit for me. I'm waiting for a stand-up special I really love again. We might be waiting for a while. Kendra, what is your keep it this week? Um, my keep it is so stupid. Uh, so as we all know, writers are now on strike. We're going to be watching a lot more reality television, I feel like. Oh, yes. The 2007 Uh, memories are flooding back. Oh, boy, yes. Um, So there's a show that I watch right now anyway. It's called Love After Lockup. It has several spinoffs as well. Uh, There's one called Life After Lockup, and there's one called Life During Lockup. So it airs on WeTV. It has three different shows that are all airing at basically one right after another they start. Um, This show has been airing for years and years and years, and they cannot figure out how to properly label the seasons of the shows. It is so frustrating. So right now, we're on like the ninth, like the 30th episode of season four, but season four has been going on for like two years now. Oh my God. You live in this show. Yo, so I live in it, but we technically should be on like a season six because we've moved, we've introduced new characters. We've moved past storylines. Certain things are done. So I just need them to straighten this out as they're going to, I'm sure, be pumping out more and more. This is a, it's an unending resource. There are always going to be idiots sending tens of thousands of dollars to women in jail. That's just, we're America. We have, uh, it's not a finite resource here. Um, So I need them to figure that out, especially as more and more people, I suspect you're going to be jumping on these bandwagons. Make it easy for for your new customers. You're going to be getting a lot of them in. Figure out how to label your seasons. Just to be clear. Yes. So there's life after lockup? Yes. Before? So there's love during lockup. Yes. Love after lockup. Life after lockup. We are really, there's no other time options left. No, that's, they've covered it all. They've covered you're meeting them while they're in jail and you're sending them money. Uh, you are meeting them in love after lockup. You're meeting them as they get out of the jail. You're going to go pick them up and you're starting your life together. And then in life after lockup, you've already sort of been established for a while and you're just living life and dealing with addiction and getting abortions on television and doing like all, it's actually, Yeah, I like it because I feel like it shows a side of life that you don't often see if you're not someone that you're having to interact with the system of incarceration in America. But also it's really stupid and fun and I love it. And there's a woman named Indy who got spiritually married. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, There was somebody named Indy on a show I was just going to bring up, Big Brother, where it reminds me of if you want to, you can just – give your entire life to this one series yes. of shows. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like, like like that's its own pop culture unto itself. And if you look for it on Twitter, it's, for some people, all they talk about. Right. So you can really lose yourself. It's like oh, a cult. And well, what's crazy is Matt Sharp, who produces this series of show, so guess what else he does? 
all of the 90 Day Fiancés. Those oh are God. all his. This man is raking. I have given this man so much money. He, David Zaslav, it should be Matt Sharp at the top yeah, wow. of Max. I'm getting like David Geffen, Aaron Spelling vibes from yes. this person. Yep. Just like mastermind of an entire like hemisphere of our brain, basically, at this point. We only talk about Andy. We don't talk about Matt. We don't talk about Mona Scott Young. There are others out there. <laughs> <laughs> Oh my God. Okay. Well, I'm afraid to start. I feel like I won't stop. This is why this is what prevents me from really beginning Housewives. I'm mm. like, well, I guess that'll just be the end of my life. Well, I ran into you at High Tops the other day, which tells me that you could get into Beverly Hills. You think so? Yeah. Sutton's there all the time. You're gonna run into her in the right. wild. Right. Yeah, you might as well be watching the show. Okay, okay. Oh God, I'm bracing myself now. Kendra, thank you so much for joining us. Of course. Thank you for having me. I'm sorry I didn't do the homework. Say what? Please. <laughs> Your Met Gala knowledge was was Jeopardy level, as it should be, because I believe they will call you back soon. I lost twice. I'm happy to go back and lose a third time. <laughs> uh, that's Keep It. Thank you to the uh, amazing Mary Steenburgen for such a fabulous interview. I hope you guys loved it as much as we loved talking to her. Um, send us your Macella opinions because I don't think I'm done thinking about it either. No, no. And we'll see you next week. Don't forget to follow us at Cricket Media on Instagram and Twitter and subscribe to Keep It on YouTube for access to full episodes and other exclusive content. Plus, if you're as opinionated as we are, consider dropping us a five-star review on your podcast platform of choice. Keep It is a Crooked Media production. Our senior producer is Kendra James. Our producer is Chris Lord. And our associate producer is Malcolm Whitfield. Our executive producers are Ira Madison III, that's me, and Louis Vertel. This episode was recorded and mixed by Evan Sutton. Thank you to our digital team, Matt DeGroot, Nar Malconian and Delon Villanueva for production support every week. And as always, Keep It is filmed in front of a live studio audience.